All right, well, more than 20 people have showed up. This is great. Uh, we, we had a, a care clinic yesterday. I want to thank everybody who came out to serve there. Um, it's good to get back to that. It was a little lighter than normal, but that's okay. We still served uh, 54 different units. That's families and individuals and a total of at least 167 people. Um, so, yeah, just really awesome. Thank you, everybody who came and served, and um, we're excited to kind of build that back into our rhythm of the things that we do. I want to thank Morgan and Bree and the Rutherford specifically and James Bowman for helping us really organize all that, so thank you all. Uh, Pastor Chris can be here today. He's actually preaching at, um, at a sister church of ours in our network up in Indianapolis called The District Church, and it's their five-year uh, five-year celebration, so they invited him up there, so we're thankful for what God is doing in Indy and uh, excited to continue to see churches being planted through the Harbor Network. So um, he wishes he could be here, but we're going to carry on in Ephesians today into one of the greatest chapters, at least greatest half of, half of a chapter that there may be in the Bible. And as I was preparing for this, I was thinking a lot just about uh, stories, story development. And I think it's something that we, we need to learn how to do a little bit more in our lives, how to understand how our stories develop over time, what God is doing in our life. This is not just something for authors and for artists and writers, but for everyone. And understanding stories is something that we often take for granted, and we don't pause and reflect. There are many reasons for this, Culturally, I think we live in a distracted and entertained era. Very, this is very clear. We have instant information, instant gratification, Amazon, the internet, supermarkets, unlimited amounts of media to consume. In fact, way too much to consume in multiple lifetimes. We're distracted by consumption and things that entertain us. This shapes how we view the stories of our lives because it tells us that everything is about us. You, I, we're the center of everything that's going on. Or maybe it simply leaves us living in a way that we feel like we're just going through the motions. We also just enjoy information. Give me the facts. Teach me the content. I'll regurgitate it. I'll do what I need to do to get things done. And this can be helpful at times. But when it comes to really learning something, I would argue that we need something more than just facts. And stories are a powerful, powerful way to teach and help people learn. A good story engages your senses, pulls people into a place where they can really understand and feel what's going on. For example, if I told you that coffee is better when it's freshly roasted than when it has been roasted, ground up, and sealed off for months, you may say, okay, this is not a dig at Folgers drinkers or Maxwell House or anything like that, although there is an objective reality that freshly roasted coffee is better. <laughs> but if I just say that statement, that doesn't really land home. But if I told you about this time I was in Honduras, this is a true story, and we were sleeping up in the mountains in a spider-infested cabin. We literally had clothes, t-shirts on us because we didn't know there were no blankets there. We didn't sleep much at all. And in the morning, I walked down a path with coffee plants literally growing over this, making this tunnel. Imagine this with me. So I'm walking through. I'm groggy. I'm tired. Probably a couple spider bites. We sit with a group of local Christians in this church, and I see someone over in the corner literally roasting coffee on a cast-iron skillet. 
and I just start to smell it, and I'm like, yes, please, please be for us. And he grinds it up, and he brews it, and the guy puts a little bit of sugar, and he hands me a cup, and I take a sip. My glasses fog over, and I, and I probably cried. <laughs> but the reality is, is you can see how a story, just a little short, silly example, engages and pulls us in so much better than just giving us information. And from a Christian perspective, we know that we are offered a glorious alternative to the storyline that is offered from what is simply found in the world. The book of Ephesians is a wonderful place where we see this. A wonderful place where we see a multitude of amazing truths about God and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But it does so in a way that paints a picture of this overarching goal and places our story within God's story of what he is doing and what he is going to continue to do and offers and that he offers us in the plan, his plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. Today, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we have one of the clearest, if not the clearest, and comprehensive passages about the gospel that can be found anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere at all. And it gives us this general framework to every single one of our stories in this room. One that clearly shows who we are, or who we were, apart from Christ. Shows what God has done in Christ and what life is like for those who have put their faith in Christ. So if you will, stand with me. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. There's some Bibles there in your rows if you don't have one. I believe it's on page yep, 976. Awesome. If you don't have a Bible like we say each week, please grab one on your way out. We have some in the bookshelf out there, and, and you're more than welcome just to take one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for this morning, uh, just a time to come together and to hear just literally the good news of Jesus Christ, hear how... Uh, Hear how all of what you're doing in history and in our lives individually and corporately uh, is ultimately summed up in glorifying you in Christ, Lord. I pray that we would learn today, uh, take some time to reflect on what you have uh, brought us from and made us alive to. And if there are those today who have not put their faith in you, I pray that they would see the life that you offer in Christ. And it's all in his name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. 
So we're going to be working through this passage by first talking about kind of the comprehensiveness of our sin and how we're alive in Christ all by grace, and then what we're made alive to, specifically for good works. So there's a few reasons why I, why I like to use the language of story as opposed to testimony. There's nothing wrong with talking about your testimony, but uh, one of those reasons I mentioned just in the intro there is that I think truths are more powerfully presented. There's a reason why Jesus taught in parables in the gospel accounts. He gives us images and engages people's senses. There's a reason that the Bible is a collection of Holy Spirit-inspired words of God that has an overarching storyline about God's redemptive purposes. It's factual and filled with information, wonderful information, but it takes a narrative form nonetheless. Second, I really like using the word about our lives as story because I think that when it relates to people, it gives us this picture that our life is not over yet. Oftentimes, when we talk about a testimony, I think it's easy to think about who we were and how God saved us in Christ, and we can leave it there. Nice. Thought we had an aisle runner. Awesome. <laughs> but I'm always bracing myself. I'm like, uh-huh. This makes me nervous now. Sorry. I think it's easy to just stop at what Christ did when he saved us and say, and now we're in Christ. But the reality is, is when we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we are putting our faith in Christ, that is just the beginning, the starting point of our new life. And it's important to frame this up because our passage today shows everybody's story who's in Christ. If you put your faith in him, now all the details are unique to each and every one of you, but there is an overarching theme that is the same. And we can rejoice and glorify God together in this. So today, take time to reflect on where you're at in this storyline. And what God has done in your life, what he's calling you to do, or maybe what he's inviting you to for the first time ever. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul painted this elaborate and amazing picture of what God has done for his people and what he is going to do to bring himself glory as Christ is exalted. And last week, we ended with this prayer of Paul, praying that people would see that we are called, what we are called to, if we are united with Christ by faith, and he throws down massive, massive theological truths, and he ends with Christ's immeasurable greatness and power, how he's been raised and seated with God in the heavenly places. 121 through 23, just before our passage today, says that he was placed far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the God we're dealing with. He reigns over all things. He has decisively defeated Satan, sin, and death. However, he has yet to fully eradicate and rid the world completely of them. It will happen one day in the new creation, but right now we live in this time, you've heard us talk about it before, this already but not yet, where God's salvation has already begun but is not yet fully consummated but will be one day. So we still live with struggles. Sin, evil, death, still at work. This is the beginning of all of our lives. All of us in here came from this point. We were born into sin. 
Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. If you look at verse 1 of our passage today, Paul reminds everyone that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Not you were morally neutral, and then you chose to do some bad things, so I'm sorry. Or we're all generally good, so make sure you keep doing more good things than bad. No, you're dead. Spiritually bankrupt. And from the time that sin entered our world, this corruption began to spread and led to where we are today. And Paul gives us three ways that this spiritual deadness plays out in our life. If you look at verse 2, we see that we are following the course of the world. This means that contextually the Ephesians were giving into the behavior and powerful influences of their culture and the societal pressures that they faced. For us today, this would just mean taking what our cultural context says is acceptable, okay, and making that the standard that we should be living up to, as opposed to living in conformity with what God says in Scripture. And this can even happen with good things. In fact, we do it all the time. But all that we are taking in throughout our lives should be examined in light of God's Word, which is why it's so important to be in God's word daily, to take it in, because it will shape you. And I wish we had more time to go down this path, but for the sake of time, we can't talk about the importance of that. But second, another thing that we see in these passages is that they were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is reference to the devil and demonic forces. At the end of Ephesians, we are going to take a good look at this reality that we do not just wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. This is hard to understand for us in our society because we are incredibly focused on the tangible, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can see. But we must recognize that We are in a spiritual battle. And when we begin to think that demonic forces are not at play, the enemy is happy. That's a lie that Satan wants us to believe. So there are worldly and evil spiritual forces at play. But then we get a third category where we just see this comprehensiveness of sin that we are born into of our spiritual deadness apart from Christ. And if you're thinking right now that all the reasons for our struggles are because of forces outside of you, and you've been listening and making a list of, yeah, well, actually, no, it's all these things. That's the reason why I have all these problems. It's those worldly things. It's what they did. It's what they did. It's these forces of evil at work. Then look at verse 3. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because of our personal sinfulness, which is amplified by worldly pressure and demonic forces, we see people are given over to all sorts of fleshly living that comes from deep down inside us. For many of us, when we think about our story or Testimony. This is a very evident part of our life. You can think of past passions of your flesh 
desires of your body and mind that once ruled you. Maybe it was an addiction or sexual sin or greed or desire for power or the ability to be overcome by an unholy anger all the time and just fly off the handle. And we can go on and on and on, but there are things that dominate us. Things that dominate us in our sin. Now it's important to remember before we go on that as a Christian we still will struggle with this. And in fact, if you've been a Christian for a long time, or haven't been for a long time, spoiler alert, (laughs) the sanctification process is long and it can be painful. You will still struggle, you will still sin, but the difference is now we no longer have to be enslaved to our sin. Because in Christ, we are not positionally under the dominion of sin anymore. That could be really hard to see sometimes, though. Maybe some of you are here today, and you're still very much carrying out the passions of the flesh. You're ruled by something and you can't place your finger on it. You haven't put your faith in Christ. And you know that all these things are not, they really don't feel like this is how we're created to be because it never fulfills you. Whatever you're chasing after doesn't fulfill. It doesn't make you happy at the end of the day. But Christ here offers something better. This is not where your story has to end. And for those of us who are in Christ, it's absolutely not where our story ends. Because the beautiful reality is God's story of redemption is not done because of our failure to live up to his standard of holiness. Amen? For those in Christ, we are not left in spiritual deadness. Our sin and the struggles we encounter due to our fallen state is not actually the point of what Paul is trying to address here. Now, he does make us feel a little like, if you're holding on your seat right now, like, oh gosh. That's what he's trying to do, but it's not to make you feel ashamed. It's to remind you, to drill home this point of what you have been plucked out of, saved from, and reborn again into. In Christ, none of our life stories end in deadness. In fact, it is quite the opposite. We are very much alive in Christ. In verses 4 through 9, within this passage, I know I said the whole passage is maybe the greatest picture of the gospel. Verse 4 through 9 may be some of the most beautiful, sweet verses that we have in all of the Bible. All of us were all those things in our trespasses and sin. But God. Two best words in all of Scripture. But God. There in verse 4, we're going to read it again. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a mouthful, and I get excited reading it. Pretty sure in the Greek it is one sentence. Just Paul just like gets excited, just keeps writing. It's awesome. God in his great mercy and love, even when you were we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. Notice how Paul describes our aliveness by two specific things. Precisely, he says in verse 6, we are raised with 
and seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, at a quick glance, this can seem a little odd. Does it not? You're like, what does it mean he's raised us up and seated us with Christ? Because this is in the past tense, and unless I'm mistaken, we're all sitting right here. We're not in the heavenly places physically. Now, often we view our being being raised with Christ as something that will only happen in the future. When Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, and those in Christ will be raised. And that is true physically. Now, I know this is hard to understand. It, every time I read it, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. But yes, physically one day we will have a resurrected body like Christ. We see that in Romans 6, 5. That those who have been united in the death like his will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's talking in the future tense there. 1 Corinthians 15 through 20 describes that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of all those who belong to him. Meaning that the harvest is already ready. Jesus is the first fruits and everything else is coming in behind it. That's all of us over 2,000 years, right? Christ is bringing in this harvest. He is the first fruits. 2 Corinthians 4.14 tells us we will be raised by the same power the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus and be brought into his presence. But what Ephesians is describing here is the fact that those who are in Christ already have experienced and participate very really in the resurrection life of Christ by our union with him. Christ has already been resurrected in his reigning. And while we have not yet physically gotten there, We have been literally, spiritually resurrected and enjoy the benefits of life in Christ right now. It's amazing. Amazing. Colossians chapter 2 and 3 shows us a great picture of this and serves as a parallel to what we've been reading here. It says in 2.12 through 15, having been, been buried, talking about Christians here, been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Man, sounds an awful lot like Ephesians 2 here. God did not just cancel your sin on the cross through Christ only. He did that, praise God. But he did so much more. He forgave your sins and your trespasses. All of the ones that you've done. All the ones that you are now doing and all of the ones that you will do if you're in Christ. Forgiven them. Nailed it to the cross put right on Jesus Christ. But now we read that Jesus has been raised and you have been raised with him to spiritually walk in newness of life. And because of this, you no longer have to be ruled by the world and sin because Jesus Jesus sits enthroned above all. And you no longer have to be worried about evil spiritual authorities because Christ has been seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as we just read in 121, it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. 
This is wild. That's about the best word I can think of. It's wild. And we cannot fully comprehend it. But nonetheless, it is amazing. You are right now alive in Christ and the story of your life, if you've put your faith in him, is one not just from freedom of sin, but a spiritually resurrected life. All that has been given to Christ is now yours. Romans 8, 16-17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. God saved you from sin, justified you. We are co-heirs with Christ. Now let that just sink in. God did not just cast your sins away as far as the east is from the west, we read in Psalm 103, but did that and gave you everything that is Christ's. I, I was trying to find an analogy, and the best I could come up with was imagining that I, was, uh, that I committed a crime in some medieval kingdom. I don't, I don't know. I'm not too into the medieval kingdom stuff, but I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, so... <laughs> You do a crime and you're put in the dungeon, right? But instead of paying for that crime, you're sitting down there and it probably stinks and it's wet and your clothes are all tattered. The king personally walks down into your dungeon cell. You've done something real, a real crime. But he walks down and he unlocks the door himself and he unlocks your chains, maybe rub, rubs your wrist a little bit because they're hurting. They've been shackled for a long time, maybe years. And he says, you're free. Your debt paid. And so as you're walking out, he says, actually, would you mind stopping? And he says, here's a new set of clothes for you. And I'm talking not just like, I'm talking Gucci, Prada, whatever y'all. I like Eddie Bauer. Yeah. All right, you see what I'm saying? They're nice clothes. And then he says, why don't you come in and join me, actually? I'm not just going to send you on your way. Come in and join me. Meet my whole family and my friends. Have dinner. And at dinner, he surprisingly gives you the keys to the castle and says, oh, by the way, this is your home now. These are your brothers and sisters. That's what it's like. Very small taste of what it's like to be a co-heir with Christ. Because we're given infinitely more. And the best part about all of this is it's by grace alone. Grace alone. Your story is one where you don't have to earn salvation in Christ. But one where it was accomplished by God from start to finish. We participate very, real, very really in this. Absolutely. But you don't have to do anything to save yourself. In fact, you can't. Paul sprinkles this in throughout this whole passage here. You see in verse 5, it says, By grace you've been saved. Verse 7, we read, The reason all of this has been accomplished is not just for you or me, but actually, ultimately, that the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ can be known. And then verse 8 and 9 shows us our works are nothing special in and of themselves because the salvation we have is all from God's grace. So we don't even get to think about boasting in all of the good things that we do because God has done it all in Christ. And all we can do is accept what he's done by faith and glory in that. Glorify him in that for his beautiful, beautiful free gift. Now, generally speaking, 
up to this point, this is where all, all of us share a similar uh, life story in Christ. God broke into your life when you were dead. All of us were dead in our trespasses. God broke in, and he made you alive. And now we're invited into an eternity of worshiping God with all of our life. And in that worship, we will find our greatest joy and purpose. And this is not something that just will start in the future, but actually now. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. And this is not just like uh, humans made in the image of God workmanship. This is new creation. All right? In Christ, we are a new creation workmanship. We are evidence that the kingdom of God has broken into the world and a new age is dawning where God will one day make all things completely and fully new. But the process has started now. And what do we see as our purpose? For good works. God does not just save us from sin and see us victoriously. Amazing things. But God saves us that we may display his glory in the good works that he has prepared for us beforehand. Hard to get around that beforehand. God has planned for us in Christ to walk in good works before the foundations of the earth. This is amazing. Because our life in Christ now has practical purpose. And our eyes are opened to what we are called to do. Our changed lives in Christ as the workmanship of God means we are new creations and called to live lives that reflect and show the new creation that we are in. This is where our general stories start to play out a little different because God created us with various gifts and personalities and skills and areas of life and seasons of life and neighborhoods to glorify God and for the good of other people. Often it's tempting. I do this all the time. We get complacent in our walk. Do we not with the Lord? It's easy to slip into a mindset that if we put our faith in Christ, well, great, we're good. Pause. Now I can do all the things I wanted to do because I live forever. That is not what God saved us for. The reality is God saved us to walk in good works. He's prepared. To walk in the newness of life that is so much more fuller than we could ever have imagined. Not just a life of trying to get through, by God's grace, 60, 70, 80 years of life. That's not the goal, to just get through that as best we can here. The purpose is to continue to display the gracious work of God to the world, no matter how much time we're given. To proclaim the beauty of a God who saves people from their spiritual deadness and makes them alive. Notice the structure of verses 1 through 10. Macro look at it. Verse 1 says, You, singular, walked in sin and trespasses. And now we, plural, should walk in good works as God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. This movement from an individual deadness to a corporate aliveness. We, the church, over the ages, in the local expressions 
of it are made alive together to walk in good works. Personally, this was one of the biggest things in my life years ago that the Lord used to shape my life. Because before I was a Christian, and as I was continuing to, and still continue to, mature in my walk with the Lord, I wrestled with really wanting to experience and feel and taste and see that following Christ was better than what the world had to offer. Because we all know those passions of the flesh and the desires of our mind and heart can be really nice. But they never fulfilled me. They never will fulfill any of us. God gripped me when I realized that we are saved to not continue to live for ourselves, but to walk in the good works he's laid out for us. To glorify him. To live under his rule as we were originally created to. For his glory. In a way that leads to our flourishing and joy. Even if we don't see that it would lead to our flourishing and joy. Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. John 15.9 Through 11 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We see that following Christ, walking in these good works that are laid out for us, leads to joy. We're given abundant Life And the point that I want to make about all of this is we are called to these God-ordained works in Christ that he has planned for us to walk as new creations in newness of life. That gives us so much purpose, right, to the life story that God is bringing you through. So much purpose. Our relationships with our kids with spouses, with friends, with each, other, with each other in the church body, something we really got to wrestle with, with our neighbors. We could talk all day about the good works that we ought to be doing, but I want to simplify it. Because as we go through Ephesians, we're going to talk more and more about this life we're saved to. But the first work we're called to is glorifying God with all we do. Our heart, mind, soul, strength, and our neighbor as ourself as we proclaim and apply the gospel. Well, time is sweet and precious, and God has laid a path for us to walk in those things right there every single moment. And it starts right here, like I just said. Thinking about it in the church is so, so important because Jesus says, and it's something we have to wrestle with, that the way that people actually know you're a Christian, that you actually follow him, is the way you love one another in the church. God created us with purpose. Saved from condemnation of our sin. Made fully alive to display the infinite beauty and worth of Christ in everything we do. Right now. Now it's important to remember, can't say it enough, that these good works that God's laid out don't save you. Okay? They're an outworking of the salvation you already have. 
as a continuation of our story in Christ, God laid them out for us to walk in. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, this is the story of our life in Christ. If you don't know Jesus today, then you're offered something so much more in Christ than what the passions of your flesh and the desires of your body offer. That does not have to be the end of your story. God offers purpose to find rest and life in him right now today and to see that this life is truly and fully alive in him. We get a chance to remember our story in Christ every week when we take communion. This is a time where we reflect on who we were before God graciously saved us in Christ. Where we remember that we are not the center of our lives or stories. But we praise Jesus for what he has accomplished on our behalf and for the fully alive life in Christ. So here at Redeemer, we take communion by uh, walking forward and tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it in the cup. If you need a gluten-free option or more comfortable, we have uh, the individual packets up here. If you're not a Christian, this is a time not to participate in a symbol, but to get the real thing. There'll be pastors in the back who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. We read in the Gospels that uh, Jesus, at the last supper with his disciples, took the bread. And when he had broken it, he said, Take and eat, this is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the same time, he took the cup and said, This is the new, or this is the this is my blood that was shed for you, excuse me. Take this in remembrance of me. At this time, uh, we're gonna have folks come forward to administer the la- the Lord's Supper. Uh, don't feel like you have to just rush up. I know everyone stands up when they feel like we have to be ordered. Take this time to really reflect on what Christ has done in your life and what he continues to do and what he's calling you to as we leave these doors. Let's pray.